Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Positive psychological states, such as feeling hopeful, grateful, and happy, have been associated with superior health outcomes, including increased participation in healthy behaviors and lower rates of cardiac mortality. Cultivation of positive states through positive psychology interventions, which use systematic activities such as identifying and using strengths or recalling positive events to boost positive emotions, has increased well-being and reduced distress among medically healthy persons. Less is known about whether cultivating positive emotions in patients with chronic medical illness has a beneficial effect on behavioral and functional outcomes. Accordingly, the authors of this study customized a 16-week positive psychology intervention and tested it in 12 patients with type 2 diabetes and poor health behavior adherence in a single-arm pilot trial. They found that the intervention was feasible, well-accepted, and associated with generally moderate or larger effects on mental health, physical activity, other health behaviors, and functional outcomes. The results of this pilot trial suggest promise in using these enjoyable, easy-to-complete activities to improve health outcomes in patients with chronic medical illness. Future studies can further illuminate the impact of positive psychological interventions in this population. This work was supported in part by grants from the National Institutes of Health. Musculoskeletal injuries may be associated with ADHD symptom severity, comorbid psychiatric or medical conditions, and the prescribed psychostimulant, but population-based statistics for these injuries have not been explored or reported in previous studies. A cohort of 7,725 cases was identified using South Carolina's Medicaid Claims Dataset covering outpatients and inpatient medical services and medication prescriptions for over an 11-year period for patients aged 17 years or younger with two or more outpatient visits for ADHD. The cohort was analyzed to compare risk factors for those who sustain traumatic and overuse musculoskeletal injuries and those who did not. The risk of sustaining concussions, sprains, muscle joint or connective tissue pain or swelling was significantly related to being diagnosed with comorbid hypertension, thyroid dysfunction, or a substance use disorder. Having a substance use disorder was also related to incident fractures and back and spinal injuries, while diagnosed diabetes was related to incident bone and cartilage disorders. Although no direct association between psychostimulant medication and incident musculoskeletal injuries was found in this study, several indirect linkages between adrenergic stimulants, hypertension, and thyroid dysfunction have been identified in previous studies, and an increased risk for substance use disorders has been associated with ADHD and participation in recreational or competitive athletics. 
comorbid hypertension, substance use disorders, and thyroid disorders deserve increased clinical surveillance in children and adolescents with ADHD treated with adrenergic stimulants because they may be associated with an increased risk of more than one type of musculoskeletal injury. Data acquisition was supported by a state mental health data infrastructure grant. However, no external support was received for data analysis. Suicide has recently risen from the third to the second leading cause of death in adolescents. The U.S. Surgeon General recommends utilizing programs in educational settings to provide crisis intervention with emphasis on peer support for seeking help. The Yellow Ribbon Suicide Prevention Program was developed in 1994 and includes Be a Link Gatekeeper training for adults, Skills Curricula for Youth, and Ask for Help cards with a help message and suicide crisis hotline number. This program is listed in the Suicide Prevention Resource Center Best Practice Registry. However, efficacy research is sparse for this program. A small study conducted in Denver High School showed a tripling utilization of a crisis hotline and concluded that further research with larger samples was needed. In this issue's continuing medical education offering, the authors evaluated the Yellow Ribbon Program using survey responses from a large representative sample of the Midwestern school system. More than 77% of respondents reported feeling comfortable seeking help for suicidal thoughts after yellow ribbon training. Females appeared to have a better understanding of risk factors and available sources for help. Younger males seemed to benefit from the yellow ribbon program more so than older males. Significant improvement was shown in suicide-related knowledge, comfort level, and behavioral intent for help seeking for suicidal crisis. Overall, the results suggest that the Yellow Ribbon School-Based Suicide Prevention Program is beneficial for students aged 11 through 18 years who attend Midwest schools. However, program efficacy for reducing suicidality among adolescents remains unknown. Binge eating disorder is the most prevalent eating disorder, but is underdiagnosed and undertreated. In this review, the clinical skills needed to recognize, diagnose, and manage binge eating disorder in a primary care setting are discussed in light of data from the clinical literature. Individuals with binge eating disorder may exhibit medical, such as type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome, and psychiatric, such as depression and anxiety, comorbidities that can impair quality of life and functionality without adequate treatment. Primary care physicians may find diagnosing and treating binge eating disorder challenging because of insufficient knowledge of its diagnostic criteria and treatment options. Diagnosis and treatment is further complicated because individuals with the disorder may be reluctant to seek treatment because of shame, embarrassment, and their own lack of awareness of the disorder. There are several short assessment tools available to screen for binge eating disorder in primary care settings. Once diagnosed, pharmacotherapy or psychotherapy for binge eating disorder should focus on reducing binge eating behavior, thereby reducing medical and psychiatric complications. 
In conclusion, overcoming primary care physician and patient-related barriers is critical to accurately diagnosing and appropriately treating binge eating disorder. Furthermore, primary care physicians should take an active role in the initial recognition and assessment of suspected binge eating disorder based on case-finding indicators such as eating habits and being overweight, the initial treatment selection, and the long-term follow-up of patients who meet DSM-5 binge eating disorder diagnostic criteria. Shire Development LLC provided funding to Complete Healthcare Communications, Inc. for support in writing and editing this manuscript. Peripheral arterial compliance is a measure of the ability of the vascular tree to dilate in response to a pressure wave. Reduced peripheral arterial compliance is seen in patients with psychiatric diagnoses and has been associated with increased risk for stroke, myocardial infarction, and mortality. The objective of this pilot study was to identify predictors of reduced peripheral arterial compliance in subjects with psychiatric diagnoses. Male psychiatric subjects were evaluated in a cross-sectional study of medication effects on peripheral arterial compliance conducted from August 2005 to February 2010. Calf and thigh compliance were modeled in separate linear regressions. The models were adjusted for age, race, smoking status, presence or absence of the metabolic syndrome, current treatment with a statin, diagnosis of schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, current antipsychotic treatment, and body mass index. Significant predictors of calf compliance were race, black versus white, and body mass index. Peripheral arterial compliance is a non-invasive measure that may be a predictor of cardiovascular risk in psychiatric patients. The reduced peripheral arterial compliance seen in patients with psychiatric diagnoses does not appear to be directly related to their diagnosis or antipsychotic treatment, but rather to other characteristics inherent in the subject. Future studies are warranted to better understand the pathophysiology of peripheral arterial compliance, including, but not limited to, inflammation in psychiatric patients. This work was supported by a VA Merit Review Grant and grants from the National Institute on Aging and the Baltimore VA Geriatrics Research, Education, and Clinical Center. The Mental Health, Research and Development, and Rehabilitation Research and Development Service Lines of the Atlanta Veterans Affairs Medical Center and Emory University contributed infrastructure support. Cyclic vomiting syndrome is characterized by recurrent episodes of unexplained vomiting and can originate in children, adolescents, and adults. Its pathophysiology is still unknown, but it is clear that the syndrome has a huge impact on the quality of life. This brief report describes the case of a 15-year-old boy with cyclic vomiting syndrome. After several pharmacologic interventions, the boy responded well to a combination of Respiridone and amitriptyline. The combination of Respiridone and amitriptyline for cyclic vomiting syndrome has not been reported in the literature before, and the use of antipsychotics is hardly mentioned, which is significant since several pharmacologic agents in the treatment of vomiting are specifically based on influencing 
dopamine in the human brain. The author suggests that antipsychotics deserve a more important role in the treatment of cyclic vomiting syndrome. Bipolar I disorder causes mood shifts that can result in personality and character trait alterations. The relationship between mood and personality and character traits in bipolar I disorder is unclear at this time. The authors of this brief report conducted a study from February 2009 to March 2010 that included 42 subjects with bipolar I disorder. Mood was assessed with the Young Mania Rating Scale and the 30-item Clinical Rated Inventory of Depressive Symptomatology. Temperament and Character Traits were assessed via the Temperament and Character Inventory. The authors found that some personality and character traits may vary according to mood state and medication in patients with bipolar I disorder. The relationships between personality and character traits may have important implications for the course of illness and pathophysiology of bipolar disorder. Thus, prospective and longitudinal studies are required. Self-inflicted hammer blow to the cranium is a rare phenomenon seen in patients with a history of attempted suicide. The resulting comminuted depressed skull fracture of the midline vertex is life-threatening. Rapid interdisciplinary communication and intervention are essential to reduce morbidity and mortality. In this brief report, the authors present a case of self-inflicted hammer blows to the head, review the relevant literature on this topic, and discuss neurosurgical and psychiatric implications. Have you ever been confronted by a patient who appeared angry? Have you ever feared for your safety while with a patient? Have you wondered how you could have approached or managed an apparently angry individual? If you have, then the case vignettes and discussion in this issue's rounds in the general hospital offering should prove useful. The authors maintain that recognizing patient anger increases safety for both physicians and patients. Anger in itself has a differential diagnosis that physicians should keep in mind. General approaches to angry patients in the acute setting include ensuring environmental security, using verbal de-escalation techniques, and applying medical and physical restraints. General approaches to angry patients in a non-acute setting include validating the patient's beliefs, using verbal and behavioral de-escalation tactics, and aligning goals and co-creation of mutual understanding. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to read a new entry in our psychotherapy casebook section and special web-based interactive content. You will also find numerous case reports on a variety of topics. We update our website weekly with new postings so there is always something new to explore. Also, we are excited to offer a digital flip page edition of this issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This turn page format will give you the feel of holding a print journal in your hands while allowing you to seamlessly navigate from article to article. We hope you will take a look at our digital journal as we think you will like it. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Sheldon signing off.
I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS Soundbites.